Hello, welcome back to our discussion on politics and the Christian, the role that we should have in that arena. We have two more lessons, and today I want to talk about the Black Robe Regiment. I decided to go ahead and devote an entire lesson to this remarkable story. Uh, I've got a podcast on it with uh, We the, the Deplorables, which all of these um, teachings will be on that, the podcast as well, uh, as in the church shift training. But this is one of the most fascinating excuse me, aspects in the formation of the, the nation, and that's the role that clergy played. And we, you know, also had many um, ministers at the time with the uh, Great Awakening that were influencing leaders and nations during this time as well. So we had clergy that were forming states, forming Bill of Rights and constitutions of their states and government and what that would look like. And like, for instance, John Wise, is one of the wisest uh, ministers that really was, um, I guess you would say, one of the go-to sources uh, for the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, etc. And uh, and so you've got clergy that are playing a role in government um, as well as their congregations. You have uh, clergies that have a, a, a voice and an influence with political leaders that are influencing the nation and other nations. You've got, I mean, if you go even to the Bible alone, you've got Elijah's entire ministry was confronting wicked and unrighteous government leaders like Ahab and his wife. Joseph was an influencer in Egypt. David was a king. Daniel served world leaders as well as his friends. And so if, you know, it's only, you know, confined to an Old Testament, then how are we supposed to make disciples of nations which we've read in an earlier, I believe, is the very first lesson where it says in Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of nations, teaching them the things, uh, to observe the things that I have commanded you guys. And so, again, I mean, Jesus, you know, is perfect theology. The Old Testament doesn't confine our role only to that time frame. The Bible takes it way uh, out into all ages when it comes to our role and influence in governments and nations. So even if you're not an American, what is your role in your nation in government and how can you influence your nation for Jesus? That is the question that we've been discussing. We have in Acts 10.38 where it says how Jesus or how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing those who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. And and so there's this idea that if we get engaged in the marketplace, we get engaged in government or business that we're possibly second class citizens, we're getting out of mission focus. Um, and really this idea of us not being involved in politics was, wasn't an idea until the 20s or 30s. And, uh, and even in the you know, book of Acts, you see Paul's main focus was government leaders. And he was a businessman according to Acts 19. And so this is actually a new idea. It's not a biblical model. The New Testament writers would not have abdicated their role in government either. Um, in fact, they had friends in government, they influenced government leaders, and some were government leaders. 
in Acts 9.15 it says, for Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So you'll notice Paul's main goal, Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So that's why he was so determined to get to Caesar. He didn't care if it cost him his life. He was going to get to Caesar and minister to him. And so for the from the foundation of America, uh, Christian leaders felt it was their duty to engage in government. They felt it was their duty to either serve in government or to engage government leaders. And for many, the way of government was a reflection of the way of the church and her leaders. Morality for them was key in determining whether a nation survived. So they would demand morality from their government leaders, whether they knew Jesus or not. So to the early clergy in this country, the nation would go the way the church went. And I agree with them completely. Now, there was an underlying influence of a lot of our government leaders during the time of the struggle for freedom, for liberty in this country. When you think of our founders like Paul Revere, John Hancock, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, John Adams, we often think that they were the most instrumental. And you wouldn't be wrong. But John Adams himself declared that Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew and Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper were two of the individuals most conspicuous, the most ardent and influential in the awakening and revival of American principles and feelings that led to our independence. You see, America has had a continuous history of ebbs and flows when it comes to patriotism, when it comes to godliness, when it comes to being engaged in civil matters. And so even back then, American zeal and fervor had cooled. But it was these two, Reverend Dr. Matt Mayhew and Reverend Dr. Cooper, who were most influential in stirring up the hearts of their congregations for an America that was founded on Christian principles and morality. Other ministers include George Whitfield. I had no idea, one of the first Great Awakening ministers, one of the most influential. In fact, he was a good friend of Benjamin Franklin and tried to get him saved. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think he heeded it. Uh, James Caldwell, brothers John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg and Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. It's John who took off his robes and was wearing his uniform and um, recruited people to fight. He was made a general in Washington's army. So how did they do it? That's the question we need to ask because we need to do it again as ministers. And that is work on shaping the thinking of the nation and the work of Christians in founding their government. That's how they did it. So first is people that have a platform need to use it to shape the way this country thinks. And then Christians need to vote. They need to make sure we have people in office that will further godly laws and morality, but we can't police morality. You may not always be able to get a Christian in that office, but get someone who is as close to righteousness as possible. And for me, that's a person who does not believe in aborting babies. So if I've got two people and I think both of them suck, if one of them's pro-life, I will probably vote that one in. But really hearing the voice of Holy Spirit, which again, I think I said in one of the uh, episodes of this that discernment is sorely lacking in the body of Christ. So do they believe in killing babies or not? 
If they do, don't vote them in. It doesn't matter. You cannot reason away. You know, people didn't want Trump because they were afraid he was going to get us into nuclear war. Well, I'm sitting here today doing these lessons, and we have Biden in office, and we are closer to a nuclear war than we ever were with President Trump. And not only that, he got born again five months into his campaign, had spiritual advisors that were all spirit-filled Christians, and he did more for this country, and yet people voted him out because he didn't like his tweets. And they voted someone in that looked beautiful, that looked like they would bring peace. And instead, we've had nothing but open borders, increase of crime, increase of gas prices, food prices, everything prices, and Russia invading Ukraine and slaughtering innocents in Bukha and other places. So you got to recognize when God is needing a Jehu in office or when he wants a David. Even David was a man at war. That's why he couldn't build the temple. So let's look at the shaping of the thought or the thinking of the nation. Today, sermons are easily captured by video, audio, text, distributed throughout the world in seconds. We've got thousands of Christian books, both electronically and in print. We can you know, easily purchase them anywhere. We've got podcasts. We have access to Christian materials. Um, it's unprecedented. Unfortunately, a lot of it, you know, comes with some wrong, you know, doctrine and man's ideas. But we're definitely blessed with technology, and with that comes the power to influence others more easily and on a wider scale than back in our founders' days. So back then, what they would do, what they would produce, is what was called a published sermon. Now, they wouldn't do all of their sermons. It was usually just a tiny fraction of a minister's sermons they felt were really important because it took a considerable amount of time and money to publish these. So, only sermons in high demand were published. So we're going to get to see what people wanted to know about by what sermons were published. And then, a high demand sermon was also one that had a life-changing and uh, significant impact on those that heard it. Alright, so looking back, what sermons had captivated the attention and interested the nation most? Well, there were topics on earthquakes. Uh, that was after one hit New England in uh, 1755. The Great Fire in Boston. I thought it was Chicago, but it was Boston. The solar eclipse, which I could see. They might have been a little bit concerned about that. And there was even a sermon on the moral um, view of railroads. <laughs> it's just amazing that these are like civic things. You know, they're like, they're not, you know, um, just biblical things, although they are biblical, but they're civic matters that interest them. So whatever was important and practical for the citizens, clergy uh, taught. There are even sermons on aging as well as executing criminals. These were called occasional sermons and were topics that basically Americans wanted to understand from a biblical point of view. Surveys have shown the same desire to know today what the Bible says about abortion and borders and more, which I did those before the um, 2020 election. They would also publish annual sermons once a year that practice, um, or sorry, like the once a year practice of preaching the artillery sermon to local military using the scriptures to lay out the proper role of military. Another annual sermon was the election sermon. The first documented election sermon was in 1634 in Virginia, and it was the longest form 
of an annual sermon in America. So these sermons emphasize and join together the reality that we're dual citizens. Citizens of heaven, that was my shoe by the way if you heard that, citizens of heaven and citizens of our nation. It also married the stewardship of government that we belong to we the people, right? So it, it, it solidified our role in government, but also our role in the kingdom and extending his kingdom into nations. It married the practical with the biblical. They wanted to know what the Bible said about very practical matters. Often, the annual sermon on the election um, outlined our duties, our civic duties, selections of leaders, like how to select a good leader to vote in, scriptures on the election process, and more. These sermons were often regularly preached before our founding fathers, like John Hancock, Samuel Adams, and before the Council, Senate, and House of Representatives. Another sermon was, quote, a voice of warning to Christians in the ensuing election of a president to the United States. So ministers would set forth the candidates and parties' positions compared to the Bible and advise whether Christians should vote or not vote for a candidate. The reason is they understood that there's not any biblical model where God's ministers remain silent with civil leaders or about civil issues. There's no biblical model for Christians to be silent about civil uh, leaders or civil issues. Isn't that interesting? On top of the sermons, many ministers served in civil uh, government. Thomas Jefferson encouraged the lifting of restrictions on people to serve in Virginia legislature. Many states had no such restrictions, or they reserved it against specific denominations like Catholicism. But even later, that was overturned because it was not uh, something that the Constitution could support because of inalienable rights. He said, quote, I observe in the Virginia Constitution an abridgment of a right I do not approve. It is the incapacitation of a clergyman from being elected. Many founding fathers attribute one man, John Locke, for most of the ideas of the Constitution. And if you read the Constitution, they are scripturally based, the ideas. He was considered a theologian, theologian. Uh, he wrote a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on Paul's epistles as well as a topical Bible called Commonplace Book to the Holy Bible that, led, that listed verses in the Bible by subject. He was not a deist, as many claim he was. That's false history. In fact, when Christianity was attacked by anti-religious Enlightenment thinkers, he defended Christianity in his book called Reasonable, Reasonableness of Christianity as Delivered by the Scriptures. And then when he was attacked because of the book, he responded with another, a vindication of the reasonableness of Christianity. <laughs> but what really was the basis for the Constitution was his two treatises of government. It was one of the most influential to the founders, philosophy and the Declaration. In fact, one signer, Richard Henry Lee, said that the Declaration was copied from these treatises. The book is less than 400 pages long, but Locke included, get this, 1,500 biblical references to, quote, show the proper operation of civil government. So he's a great thinker. He's probably brilliant. The Constitution. Our country is the longest ongoing constitutional republic in the history of the world. 
Our Constitution is not a compilation of best clauses and ideas from other countries, but instead was and is an original and uniquely American document, which is why we are one of the most powerful nations in the world. But it begs the question, where did these ideas come from, these original ideas? Well, like I talked about, one political scientist discovered they took on the task of analyzing 15,000 writings from the founding era over 10 years. They wanted to identify and isolate, quote, specific political sources quoted during the time surrounding the establishment of American government. They felt that if they found the source, the most dominant source um, uh, of the quotes, they could figure out the origins of the father's political ideas. So this was a political science endeavor. Their project revealed that the single most cited authority was the Bible, 34%. So that tells you what was in the mind of the founding fathers. Everything from immigration laws to citizenship to capital punishment to the branches of government to tax exemptions for churches, which, by the way, was even before the 501c3, which you don't need, uh, but they, they still exist today. We have more authority as a church to stay a church and be tax-exempt than anybody else. You wouldn't know that though. It also helped them form the republic idea of a government, including electing officials and much more, which I've already read a lot out of um, The Role of Pastors and Christians by David Barton. Highly recommend. Okay. <clears throat> the esteem our founders held Christianity is what created a welcoming environment for other faiths. To them, Christianity was far superior to other religions, and so they didn't mind other ideas and religious thought coming into our country. Um, I do think I skipped this up. Let me get to page 21 and see if I read this in a former... Oh yeah, I read this, where had the people during the revolution had a suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. This was the conclusion of the U.S. Congress following an extensive year-long investigation into the idea that America was founded on Christian principles. Don't, don't let even Christians tell you we weren't. That whole Mason thing, uh, the Bartons have a really good book on that. Uh, it makes um, things that seem weird, all of a sudden they make sense. Okay. Plus, they have original source documents and stuff from the people's mouths. Now, Many, again, including Christians, have tried to rewrite history or minimize the role that Christianity and Christians and clergy played in founding and developing this country. To many of them, the founders were atheists, agnostics, deists, Satanists, which there were probably a couple in there that were. But I want to look at, um, well, we've already looked at two of the least uh, religious founders and their high opinion of Christianity. That would be Jefferson and um, Franklin. But let's look at some of the earliest settlers. This tradition of clergy influencing our nation and leading even in political office goes all the way back to 1606. The early settlers had arrived in Virginia, and they included ministers like Robert Hunt, Richard Burke, William Meese, uh, Alexander Whitaker, William Whitman, and more. They formed America's first representative government, meaning you hire people to represent you, or elect people to represent you in 1619. The Virginia House of Burgesses, 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 I don't know, um, with members elected by the people. 
They met in Jamestown Church, and they always opened with prayer. Then, in 1620, the pilgrims landed in Massachusetts. Their pastor, John Robinson, charged them to elect civil leaders who would not only seek the common good, but also eliminate special privileges and statuses between governors and the governed. See, it was already starting. They already had to have governments that eliminated special privileges and statuses between governors and the governed. Man always wants control. They always want to take over. As long as we know that and understand that, we can function fine. We can get the people out that are crooked as a dog's hind leg, and we can get people in that are hopefully not. And if we get God back in schools, and in education, and government, and policy, we'll be a lot better off. Don't buy into that separation of church and state like I talked about, I think, in the first or second one, which, again, very good book by the Bartons on that. Um, now, this was considered radical, by the way, his work back then. But they organized the representative government, and they held annual elections, and they also established in 1636 a Citizens' Bill of Rights, which was America's first Bill of Rights. The same occurred with the pilgrims in the Massachusetts Bay Colony under the leadership of their ministers. They called it the Body of Liberties, and it was written by Reverend Nathaniel Ward in, excuse me, in 1641. In 1636, Reverend Thomas Hooker, along with Reverends Samuel Stone, John Davenport, and Theophilus Eaton, founded Connecticut. They established an elected form of government as well, but also our first written constitution, get this, based on a 1638 sermon on Deuteronomy 113 and Exodus 18.21, that described the three principles of biblical government. Number one, the choice of public magistrates belongs to the people. Number two, the privileges of election belongs to the people. And number three, those who have power to appoint officers and magistrates, the people, also have the power to set the bounds and limitations of their power and place. New Jersey was chartered in 17, uh, 1676 and it was then divided into uh, two um, sub-colonies. You had the Puritan East Jer Jersey and the Quaker West Jersey. Each had their own representative governments. And the governing document for West Jersey was written by Christian minister William Penn. Penn later wrote the 1681 frame of government for Pennsylvania that established annual elections and numerous guarantees for citizen rights. The list goes on and on and on. But it gets even better. These are all clergy, guys. So what I'm talking about. It wasn't until the 20s or 30s that we were told to sit down and shut up. And now the church is doing it. Telling people to sit down and shut up. Don't get involved in politics and all that stuff. Right before the Revolutionary War, a great awakening swept across the entire um, uh, colonies. All of the colonies. And it reawakened the hearts of the people for God. One significant leader of this movement was Reverend George Whitfield, which shocked me. I had no idea the role he played in actually sparking the revolution. He traveled throughout the American colonies in Europe for 34 uh, years. He preached 18,000 times. It was estimated that 80% of all Americans heard him preach. 
Jonathan Edwards, William Tennant, and Samuel Davies also set hearts aflame during the awakening. Thousands converted to Christianity and churches were filled. During this time, Benjamin Franklin and George Whitfield became friends. What many don't know is that it was Whitfield's uh, Father Abraham sermon that unified the colonies under the umbrella of Christian faith versus dispute uh, and hostility toward one another denominationally. We needed that because if we couldn't join, we weren't going to be able to fight. So his sermon unified us. Whitfield, uh, let's see, what message uh, could he share that would be acceptable from one colony to the next? And what could he do to break down the walls that separated them? Whitfield's father Abraham's sermon provided an answer. Many founding fathers heard its unifying message, which challenged their thinking and reminded, remained in their minds across the years. John Adams recounted this particular sermon to his friend Thomas Jefferson, describing how Whitfield pretended to be at the gates of heaven talking with Abraham. He, Whitfield began, Father Abraham, with his eyes, hands and eyes, gracefully directed toward heaven, as I have more than once seen him. Father Abraham, whom do you have there with you? Is it Catholics? Is it Baptists? Ang Anglicans? And each time, Father says, no, no, no. Have you dissenters? No. Have you, um, what was the other one? Uh, Presbyterians? No. Quakers? No. Anabaptists? No. Whom have you there? Are you alone? No. My brethren, you have the answer to all these questions in the words of my next text. He who fears God and works righteousness shall be accepted of him. Now the reason, again, that this sermon was so important is there would be no America if, or independence if there was not a unified force of the people and the denominations. Representative Davies pointed out that the, quote, miraculous divine intervention that saved George Washington's life during the French and Indian War uh, put uh, George Washington on the radar to, lead the, uh, to be lead general, and he also influenced Patrick Henry, meaning that not only was there a unification, they also saw God's hand in taking care of specific people and specific leaders and their own nation. Elisha Williams, a congregation, Congregationalist minister who wrote The Essential Rights and Liberties of Protestants, that set forth biblical ideas of equality, liberty, and property. Jonathan Mayhew was also a Congregationalist minister who reminded listeners and later readers that rebellion against tyrants, get this, was both biblical and just in his 1750 sermon concerning unlimited submission. We just talked about that in the Romans 13 uh, in Peaceful Noncompliance lesson. He is attributed with awakening and revival of American principles and feelings that led to our uh, independence, and that's according to John Adams. Now, listen to a couple of the quotes or some of the sermons that they preached um, during the Great Awakening. Civil ma magistrates must be just, ruling in the fear of God, unlimited submission and non-resistance -res to the higher powers, religion and patriotism, the con constituents of a good soldier, the advice of Joab, Joab to the most holy 
of Israel going forth to war, good news from a far country, Oration upon the beauties of liberty, spirit, scriptural instructions to civil rulers, Jesus Christ, the true King. These sermon titles illustrate that early pastors openly taught biblical principles related to government and culture. As historian Alice Baldwin documented, such sermons were indispensable in shaping America's unique view of civil and religious liberty. There is not a right asserted in the Declaration of Independence which has not been which had not been discussed by the New England clergy before 1763. So many founding fathers were ministers. The education of children was primarily to teach them the Bible. Great universities were started so they could churn out great ministers to further the gospel like Harvard and Princeton and more. America was ripe for change. She was unified and she was on fire for God. Now, in the meantime, tensions were building with England. American leaders had repeatedly tried to avoid war uh, and gain our independence peacefully. <clears throat> Several delegations <coughs> excuse me, would go back and forth. And, I mean, that would take months back then, traveling. I mean, a lot of expense, a lot of time. And we had tasted freedom. It was too late. We'd already tasted liberty with our representative government. There's no way we were going to allow the abuses of England to continue. And while many point to taxation without representation as a main fire that lit the war, the biggest concern was the spread of slavery. Americans didn't want it. England did. So that, along with religious persecution and other grievances, caused us to write our declaration. There's 27 grievances in it. So it was a matter of time before Britain attacked and we needed an army. So George Washington had tried three times to gather an army, but Americans weren't interested in spite of the oppressive rule of England because we're a naturally peace-loving people. It wasn't until George Washington approached the clergy that an army was gathered. Remember John Muhlenberg? Here's his story. They call him Peter. Peter Muhlenberg is perhaps the most iconic figure associated with the Black Robe Regiment. Virginia minister, Muhlenberg accepted a commission to lead a regiment of the Continental Army. <clears throat> an anecdote, like apocryphal, from an 18th century biography depicted Muhlenberg preaching to his congregation in his clerical robes. He uh, only to strip them off and reveal his military uniform underneath, a dramatic appeal for men to join the Patriot struggle. Muhlenberg served as an officer in the Continental Army throughout the war and commanded a brigade at the Battle of Yorktown. But Muhlenberg's literal participation in the war's fighting was highly unusual for clergymen. Far more common in the origin of the British label Black Robe Regiment was a rhetorical support for independence those ministers offered regularly from their pulpits. Nor should the undeniable importance of support from this influential group of Protestant clergymen suggest that the American Revolution was mainly a religious revolution or that supporters were monolithic in their faith. Colonial religious life was heterogeneous and reflected a diverse set of beliefs. Some Patriot supporters, like the Black Robe Regiment in their congregations, subscribed to Protestant faith and read in the events of the war evidence that God favored their cause. The Brits called the support of Christian clergy and ministers the Black Robe Regiment because they recognized a significant and influential role and garnering, garnering the support of the American people 
uh, to fight what they considered a righteous cause. The Brits used it as a derogatory term for us. We can see the impact of clergy in not only shaping the nation's thought, but literally fighting and shedding blood for her. And as I said, the war actually began um, in the lawn of a church uh, uh, um, what's the word? led by Jonas Clark. Revere was specifically trying to find and warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock, whom the British had ordered to be seized. He rode directly to where he knew he would find them, the home of Reverend Jonas Clark, a pastor in the small town of Lexington. The Reverend Clark had taught the biblical principles of liberty to his church members and prepared them to defend themselves if necessary after being informed that British troops were on their way to Lexington. Clark asked his people if they would fight. He responded that he had trained them for that very hour. The shot heard around the word that it, world, that is the first shot in the first battle of the American War for Independence, took place the next morning, April 19, 1775. Approximately 70 members of Reverend Clark's congregation, including both black and white parishioners, gathered on the lawn of the church to face what Clark counted to be 800 British. At the end of the skirmish, 18 Americans, including white patriot John Robbins and black patriot Prince Estabrook, which I love Prince, had been killed and wounded. Um, I did a little bit of reading about him. He was neat. Uh, all 18 of these brave Americans were members of Reverend Clark's church. After watching that momentous scene, Reverend Clark declared, from this day will be dated the liberty of the world. Interestingly, a month before the battle at Lexington, Governor Jonathan Trumbull of neighboring Connecticut had called for a day of public fasting and prayer that God would graciously pour out His Holy Spirit on us to bring us to a thorough repentance and effectual reformation, that it would restore, preserve, and secure the liberties of this and all the other American colonies and make this land a mountain of holiness and habitation of righteousness forever. Isn't that stunning? And we're told we're not a Christian nation. Again, you've got to go to the original sources. Governor Trumbull had decided that the state would observe this particular day of prayer and fasting on Wednesday, the 19th of April, the day on which, unknown to him, the Battle of Lexingburg would occur. Uh, Lexington. Provincially, providentially, God had uh, an entire nation uh, praying on the very day the fighting began. The American Minutemen who faced an overwhelmingly larger British force that day, had been instructed to not fire upon unless fired upon. Um, Captain John Parker, a member of Reverend Clerk's church, specifically told them, do not fire unless fired upon. After the battle, British General Thomas Gage, who was not at the conflict, claimed that we fired the first shot. But Pastor Clark, who had been an eyewitness, emphatically responded, nothing can be more certain than the contrary, nothing more false, weak, or wicked than such a representation. That, I mean, this is amazing. For our founders and those who fought for a nation, the purpose of government was to secure our inalienable rights. The fight to protect our God-given rights started way before we were a nation, like I talked about before. British, British subjects, of which we were, began the fight in 1016 or 1086, there's a little bit of discrepancy, through a series of five documents that were meant to address abuses from the kings. As many of our founding fathers were British subjects, they would have known this history, and they would have seen the mistakes that led to the government overreach and oppression of humanity 
and human liberty from Britain that we were encountering as the colonies. Our founding fathers worked hard to create documents not to give us those rights, but to protect them. So what happened? How did we go from a nation formed and founded by Christian thought and ministers to one where most stay out of politics? Some don't even vote at all. And even call addressing political issues in society as gospel overreach. That's the term. I couldn't remember what it was. I think it was like the first lesson. How did we get there? How can the gospel ever overreach in the first place? Well, here are several factors. Number one, incorrect teaching and doctrine regarding the church's role and the Christian's role in society, especially government. Number two, a gen general ignorance of our history. Number three, a direct attack against our history by Christians and non-Christians alike. Four, the separation of state and church. And number five, the Johnson Amendment. And by the way, I read out of the American story by Barton. So I want to give you a clear history of our role in this country, or I've just given it to you. I've also shown you in the scriptures how believers in God influence leaders and nations. Any historian that tries to tell you that we were formed just to preserve slavery is outright lying. All you have to do is go back to the original documents and read books from the original founders that provide a genuine supply of information and even those that write on history need to have a generous supply of footnotes to original source documents because now like the 1619 project you can create an entire fictional piece and never have a single footnote like that one so it's unbelievable the lack of um, sourcing that we have today now again we've already talked about separation of church and state this, this phrase is extra constitutional, but it does support, and the idea behind it is the protection of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law establishing religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now you might think, well, that establishes it right there. There should be no law establishing religion. Not so fast. If you read the congressional record of the discussions our founding fathers in the first Congress from June 8th to September 25th, 1789, you will see that what they were doing was, quote, this is from the record, they were trying to prevent, quote, the legal establishment by the national government of a single religious denomination and exclusion of all others, like Great Britain had done throughout its history. Therefore, religion and denomination were used interchangeably at the time. In other words, the United States government couldn't say we're Anglican, or the United States government couldn't say that we're Baptist. There would be no such denomination established. We would be free to worship God as we chose. The first part of the clause prohibited Congress from establishing a national religion to the exclusion of others, and the second clause prevented them from prohibiting citizens from the free exercise of religion. So some try to say that we're not a Christian nation, that we were never founded, but I've proven, I mean, even a cursory examination of the writings of our fathers will prove that we're a Christian nation. We've always been a Christian nation. And that's important because if you don't think we were a Christian nation, you're not going to fight for us. And you're not going to fight for us to be restored as such. Prayer in government settings, schools to teach the Bible, etc., were all practiced. There were some founding fathers who didn't like it at all and said that no religion should be practiced at all in those public settings, but it didn't sit well, well with the people. And there were some abuses in the colonies, for sure. 
And overall, the evidence shows a clear Christian founding. So, like I, we talked about already, the separation of church and state phrase came from the letter that um, Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Baptists of Danbury who were worried about that clause in the Constitution. And he assured them, no, that clause protects the government from attacking your worship of God and from establishing a denomination that has precedent over all the other denominations. But, um, you know, people don't read the entire letter nowadays. They don't even know where it comes from. Some people think it's in the Constitution. Removing God from the public arena has had devastating effects in this nation. And I don't have time to go into them. This happened on our watch, and we need to reverse it. We disengage from business, we disengage from government, and now we're in trouble. And after that came the Johnson Amendment. So the Johnson Amendment came about, uh, and it has a long history, by the way, we had a long history of um, religious tax exemption prior. Um, I mean, I've got a, I'll put this website link in the, the church shift training, but also in the podcast um, notes. But there is, um, at blackrobridge.org, there's an upload, the Stanley Volume 24.2 uh, PDF. It's a brief history of church uh, tax exemption. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. You can start with that and then read uh, the 1954 U.S. Senate race in Texas to page 248. And you will see that Johnson was losing against a guy that was running against him because of two nonprofit organizations that were not religious in nature, but were supporting his opponent. So he decided that he would um, introduce the Johnson Amendment under the guise of we can't allow nonprofits to mess with our election processes. So most people thought it was a good idea. You're right, we shouldn't allow that. So they passed the Johnson Amendment, which again, was not supposed to be just for, um, was not supposed to target just churches. It was supposed to target any nonprofit. Sure enough, it uh, chilled free speech. Uh, Johnson won, the opponent lost. But even so, any time a nonprofit has been challenged by the Johnson Amendment, the Supreme Court has repeatedly refused to quote, chill free speech, and has acknowledged the quote, ancient history of religious tax exemption even before the Johnson Amendment, which President Trump loosened a lot of the, the uh, things there and then this Biden has put them back on. So I hope that through this series, a new black regiment, black robe regiment, will be formed and will use urgent education to awaken the hearts of Americans to God, our history, our duty, our responsibilities to steward our government that we are uniquely capable of possessing in this nation. If every Christian voted, we would end legalized abortion. We would further the prosperity of the nation. We'd protect individual rights and liberties given to us by God. We'd protect freedom of worship. We would enjoy the blessings of God on us. And we would serve as an evangelistic tool to other nations. Well, right now, the filth we're producing out of Hollywood, and music, etc., is a shame on our history. Psalm 67, 1 through 2 says, God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth and your salvation among nations. That should be the goal, that we are such a bright and shining light on a hill that other nations want what we have. 
as with anyone or anything I teach, do your own research. And I've got some great resources I've mentioned to you, but know this. If you remain passive, thinking that God will deliver this nation without our participation, America will forever be lost. No more just praying without boots on the ground. That's not allowed. Engage locally and statewide first. Vote. Get elected to local and state offices. Be poll watchers and prevent fraud. Conduct educational classes. Host those who educate. Ask God to show you what your role is in the context of your life, your location, your occupation, your family. Time is running out. We must take action now.